Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by PACE CME, the Physician's Academy for Cardiovascular Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to this symposium on hypertrophic myopathy, and we will try to unhide all hidden aspects of this disease. Let's start from the basics. Hypertrophic myopathy is a thick heart, hypertrophied heart. And according to the scientific definition, what is hypertrophied in this heart, what is thick, is the myocytes, the cells. So we expect to see hypertrophied cells, and we also expect to see scar tissue between the cells, fibrosis, and we also expect to see loss of the myocyte architecture, which we call disarray. This is when the cells are not aligned anymore and they, um, they lose their, their um, normal um, structure. On top of this, and additionally, we sometimes see microvascular ischemia, which has a number of different mechanisms. Although these are uh, common markers, common, common features of hypertrophic neuropathy, we don't always see them together, and we don't see them in, all, in the whole heart. They can affect different areas of the heart, and therefore we may not be able to identify them in, in certain parts of the heart. Since hypertrophic neuropathy is associated with hypertrophied cells, it is important that we discriminate it from other conditions that appear with a thick heart, but the cells are not hypertrophied, and the thickness and the appearance of a thick heart is because of deposits. And the deposits can be lipids, such as in Fabry's disease, or amyloid, such as in amyloidosis. It's important that we diagnose and discriminate those conditions early because they have different prognosis, different pattern of inheritance in the family, but also they have different treatment. Nowadays, these conditions can be treated can be stabilized and sometimes reversed if we diagnose them early. So it's very important that the diagnosis happens timely. Hypertension is followed by question marks because hypertension has historically been one of the conditions that we needed to um, eliminate from the diagnostic uh, list before we diagnosed hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And in hypertensive patients, we do see a degree of hypertrophy. Nowadays, although hypertrophic empathy is a separate disease, we believe that hypertension sometimes can play a role in the development of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and therefore the two are studied very carefully together, although they are separate diseases. The etiology of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy at the genetic level is usually associated with the sarcomeric genes, the genes that encode information for the sarcomeric proteins, and follows an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance. The commonest genes which are affected in hypertrophic empathy are the myosin heavy chain and the myosin binding protein C gene. The genetic testing has a number of challenges. Patients often present with mutations, DNA changes which have not been observed elsewhere. We call them private mutations, and these are difficult to study because we don't have data on how they will behave in the future 
what the uh, clinical condition, uh, uh, what clinical condition they will produce. When we send a DNA sample to the lab, we expect the lab to identify a pathogenic change in the DNA. This means that the change in the DNA can be safely associated with the clinical condition and is expected to cause the same condition in all people who carry it. However, we often get from the lab the result which is a VUS, which means variant of, some, of unknown significance, and it's self-explanatory. It means that the uh, DNA change cannot safely be associated with the clinical condition, and although it may not be benign, equally, it, is not, it cannot be confirmed that it is pathogenic. When we are in this situation, we need to study both the genetic chains and the family in more depth and possibly follow both in the future because sometimes the um, classification of the VUSs changes and they become either benign or pathogenic. But until we have a new classification, the VUSs is a result from the lab that is not actionable. We cannot do anything with that. Another complex issue is that the changes in the DNA in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have incomplete penetrance. So they don't give the full phenotype in all patients, and this variability can exist also within the same family. Therefore, the study of both the genetic change in the family and the clinical expression in the same family, as well as, as in other families who have similar genetic change, is both challenging and very helpful and we have to do it when we are uh, uncertain about the genetic results. When there is history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the family, then the possibility of getting back a positive genetic result, a genetic result which is pathogenic, is higher, which means that we are in the right direction, and when we confirm pathogenicity in one um, genetic change, in one mutation, then it does affect and cause the condition in more people in the same family. How does the genetic change in, um, translate to the clinical condition? Obviously, it's a very long pathway. And since there are multiple genes involved and multiple mutations, it's not a straight line. The starting points can be different, but what happens in a, in a very short summary is that the protein produced is either not good quality or it is produced at low levels. And this is not only because it is not um, translated, the DNA change, but it's also because the body itself rejects the proteins which are not of good quality, and therefore the overall um, volume of them is reduced. In the cell, in the myocardial cell, what happens is that the actin and the myosin are bound together more firmly than what they should, and sometimes the unbinding is uh, problematic and doesn't happen. The metabolism of the calcium is affected, and this complicates this binding of actin and myosin even more. And at the end, the metabolism of the, um, of the cell is more demanding. This triggers a number of pathways. Some of them are gene-specific, others are non-specific to the gene, which at the end cause hypertrophy. Many other factors play a role in this long journey. 
epigenetic factors, post-transitional protein modifications, factor, uh, factors from the environment. And we are looking also into modifier genes, which means that some other genes may play a role in the expression of the responsible gene, and they can either enhance or reduce the expression of the main gene, causing more or less severe clinical condition. When the patient comes to our clinic, though, all this information is in the background. What the patient is expecting from us to look at is three main domains. One is the risk of complications. And usually what is in people's mind is the risk of sudden death. It's a real risk. It does happen in some patients with hypertrophic myopathy, But fortunately, it's a low risk. The second question that the patients have is their symptoms. And this is an interesting question because there are patients who don't experience any symptoms despite the diagnosis. There are patients who experience mild symptoms. And there are patients who experience quite significant symptoms which can be debilitating. The challenges here are quite a few. The two main challenges are that these symptoms are quite dynamic and the patients typically describe good and bad days, good and bad periods. And therefore, to get a full and holistic understanding of their symptoms needs a lot of work. The other challenge is that patients suffer from this chronic disease and over the time they adapt their physical activities and their lifestyle to the, the symptoms in order to prevent them. And of course, that's the right thing to do. However, this gives us possibly a false impression of mild symptoms or sometimes non-existing symptoms because the patients are not doing uh, many physical activities and they have given up a number of hobbies and other activities that would have caused symptoms. Finally, we need to look at the family and consider the genetic testing, which we have discussed, but also the screening of the family members in order to diagnose them early and to make sure that they don't have risks. Assessing the heart with hypertrophic myopathy is not very different than assessing any other heart at the beginning. However, the individual morphology and anatomy of this heart poses a number of challenges here as well. When assessing the systolic function, we usually look at the ejection fraction, which is sometimes um, incorrect because of the hypertrophy and the small end diastolic volumes and overestimates the systolic function. The, the diastolic function is always difficult to assess in these patients because it's multi-parametric. And in probably 70% of these patients, we can detect left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, which is responsible for their symptoms. This is the obstruction of the outflow of the left ventricle during systole. It's a very dynamic event. And to this contribute the hypertrophied interventricular septum, the abnormalities of the mitral valve, the position in the left ventricle of the papillary muscles, the angulation of the interventricular septum, the contractility of the heart, the loading conditions, and many other factors which are not listed here. Essentially, this is a pathology of the whole left ventricle and not of the left ventricular outflow tract or of the hypertrophied septum. And the very detailed study of this can, can uh, assist, can help us make the correct diagnosis and treat it in, a pro in an appropriate way. Some patients, though, do not have 
obstruction in the left ventricle. When this is our impression, we need to confirm it with a number of tests and provocation tests. And if all these tests suggest that there is no obstruction, then we need to start looking at the heart muscle and how the heart muscle's stiffness contributes to the symptoms of these patients. For, for both obstructive and non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiopathy, in an ideal situation, we would like to use specific treatment and specific drugs. However, we don't have those. For many years, we have been using non-specific treatment, treatment that has been developed for other cardiac conditions and has been used in hypertrophic cardiopathy, hoping that it will help these patients. And the commonest uh, medication used here is the beta blockers, who, which have a negative inotropic effect. A small number of these patients will end up with heart failure and reduced systolic function, and then um, maybe uh, invasive and advanced options uh, and escalation of the management are necessary, such as transplantation. So from this presentation, I think a number of points have been uh, can be identified as action points, and one of them is the early and accurate diagnosis of the hypertrophic empathy and the discrimination from other causes of a thick heart. The risk stratification is an ongoing challenge which will be massively helped by big data and artificial intelligence. In terms of assessing the patient's clinical condition, we need to focus on their real life, their symptoms, and try to evaluate them in a way that uh, will give us useful information about who needs treatment, when, and what type of treatment. And this treatment needs to be more efficient, needs to be disease-specific, and needs to address the problems which cause symptoms in hypertrophic homeopathy in obstructive and non-obstructive. In an ideal situation, again, knowing now the root cause of this condition, we should be able to modify the condition or even prevent it from um, expressing altogether. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy making the diagnosis. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is defined by an increased or left ventricular wall thickness equal or exceeding 15 millimeters. In the left upper panel, you can see the typical echocardiography image of a patient with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy with asymmetrical hypertrophy, systolic, systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, and this is a patient with obstruction. Half of the patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy don't have any complaints. Patients that do have complaints often complain about shortness of breath, syncope, pre-syncope, and heart failure symptoms. We are, of course, afraid of sudden cardiac death, especially during, uh, during exercise. The pathological hallmark of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is depicted in the right upper panel, where you can see the myocardial disarray, and below that you can see a typical CMR image of a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with late cadmium enhancement depicting replacement fibrosis. We do have treatment options for patients with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy like the myectomy and the alcohol septum ablation in the lower panel and we can prevent sudden cardiac death by the implantation of ICDs. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is often a familiar disease with an autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance which means you also have to 
take attention and care about the family members. And in patients with genetic hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, uh, pathogenic DNA variants and sarcomere genes are present. So if we like to make the diagnosis in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we should identify patients with cardiac hypertrophy. And this starts with an index of suspicion. Of course, the patient can have symptoms like shortness of breath, chest pain, palpitations, presyncope or syncope. But we often get patients referred with just an abnormal ECG without complaints or a cardiac murmur. And of course, we have patients that come from a family of, of a known hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and especially in first-degree relative, you should have a high index of suspicion. So if you are making the diagnosis in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, clinical assessment is focused on etiology, including genetic testing, pathophysiology, treatment options, and risk certification for sudden cardiac death. So the etiology of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, in almost half of the patients, a pathogenic DNA variant in a sarcomere protein gene is involved, and especially myosin-binding protein, C- protein C3 and myosin-heavy chain are involved in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In almost a third of the patients, we have an unknown etiology, and of course there are also other genetic and non-genetic causes like cardiac amyloid, Fabry or Denon's disease, which we should call hypertrophic cardiomyopathy phenocopies. And it's really important in making the diagnosis that we also have some information about the etiology, especially with new treatments entering the field. So this clinical evaluation of a patient with uh, left ventricular hypertrophy It's crucial to pay attention to the family history, so just draw a little pedigree. Signs, of course, symptoms, the ECG, cardiac imaging, and some really routine laboratory tests. If you have features of a specific disease, you can either really go in that direction or ask for specific genetic testing. If you don't have any clue which specific disease is underlying this left ventricular hypertrophy, then we continue with genetic testing. In history and physical examination, it's important to pay attention on the age and the gender of your patients, as most inherited diseases occur in younger patients and most uh, uh, left ventricular hypertrophy caused by hypertension or especially uh, or cardiac amyloid will happen in older patients. Gender, you should also take into account gender in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Race ethnicity is also important, especially in uh, inherited uh, TTR, cardiac amyloid. Uh, there's a high prevalence of pathogenic DNA variants in blacks. You should pay attention to extra cardiac manifestations like a carpal tunnel in cardiac amyloid and also pay attention in the mode of inheritance. For example, uh, mitochondrial diseases are inherited in an X-linked pattern. The ECG is often overlooked, um, but it's really important in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. First of all, it could raise the suspicion of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy if you see left ventricular hypertrophy on the ECG. But also, ECG abnormalities may suggest a specific diagnosis or morphological variance, like giant negative T-wave inversion that can be present in patients with apical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, low or normal QRS voltages in the presence of left ventricular hypertrophy should point you in the right direction of cardiac amyloid, 
pre-excitation in patients with storage diseases like Pompen, Denon or PRKAQ2, and abnormal Q-waves can point in asymmetrical left ventricular hypertrophy or replacement fibrosis. And in this slide, you see some um, examples of ECGs of patients with left ventricular hypertrophy. The, in the lower part, this is a patient with apical hypertrophy, and actually his first echo came back normal, but that was because they didn't pay attention to the, to the apex of the heart. In the upper right panel, you can see a patient with Denon disease, extensive left ventricular hypertrophy with ripplerization abnormalities, but also a really short PR interval and some pre-excitation. And then in the lower panel on the right, this is a patient with cardiac amyloid uh, with extensive hypertrophy on echo. But you see actually normal voltages or even lower voltages and also the presence of pathological Q waves. So this is a patient with cardiac amyloid. Then echo. Well, echo echocardiography in cardiology in general is central in the, making the diagnosis and also monitoring of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It can give us a really good impression of the left ventricular wall thickness, but also the systolic function, diastolic function, left atrial alert, enlargement, mitral valve abnormalities, and of course, if we're talking about left ventricular uh, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, also in left ventricular outward obstruction, both in rest and during provocation. Left ventricular outflow tract obstruction is a, a typical hallmark of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and you should really look for it. So you should make echo images both in rest and during prov uh, physiological provocation with false alpha or exercise, and the definition of left ventricular gradient obstruction is equal or exceeding 30 millimeters of mercury, and if it's above 50, it's hemodynamically important and may point in a specific treatment option. Then a word on cardiovascular magnetic resonance imaging. It can show us many of the things that echo can also do, but I think um, it's really important for myocardial tissue characterization and also plays an important role in patients with less optimal echo images. So patients with poor echo windows or echocardiography inconclusive, suspicion of an alter alternative diagnosis, but also for risk stratification, the maximum wall thickness, the ejection fraction, presence of apical aneurysms and extent of fibrosis. And it can also help us to guide for our invasive therapy, especially on mitral valve abnormalities, papillary muscle abnormalities. These are some clinical images of patients with cardiac uh, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy from our own clinic. On the left side, you see a patient with an extensive apical um, aneurysm, which is really nicely uh, shown by the CMR. In the middle panel, this is a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy carrying a myosin heavy chin mutation. You can see the extensive late cadmium enhancement. And on the right part, you can see the typical image of late cadmium enhancement in cardiac amyloid, pointing in another direction than classical hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So to conclude, I think it's important that we all have an index of suspicion of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in patients that we are encountering. We start with a clinical, classical clinical evaluation, including cardiac images, with special focus on both history of the patients for extra cardiac manifestations, but also the family history. Don't forget about the ECG. I think there's a central role for echo, including provocation of left ventricular outward tract obstruction. And CMR really has an added 
value in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and I think it should be performed in any patient presenting with left ventricular hypertrophy. I really like to thank you for your attention. Hello, my name is Jacopo Olivotto. I'm a clinical cardiologist working in Florence and privileged to be part of this symposium. And we'll be speaking about the therapeutic landscape of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So we now know very well that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is not as rare as we thought. It is a complex disease and it's far more complex than just a thick heart. We know that obstruction is an important determinant of symptoms. We know that the, the metabolic, energetic and uh, electrophysiological consequences of the disease are far-reaching and important. We also know that treatment of these patients is complex. And it's not just giving drugs, it's not just sending patients to operation or interventions. It is a chronic, slowly progressive disease with low event rates. We need to comprehensively treat patients from, and, and taking into account everything from uh, quality of life to treatment of complications to uh, professional uh, lifestyle decisions and much more. So when we talk about comprehensive management, this is really what we mean. But of course, in terms of actual treating complications and treating the disease, uh, I've been in this business for over two decades, and for a long time, the, the best landscape has been those of the interventional, the surgical, and, in, and the interventional cardiologists, simply because there were fantastic options. There still are fantastic options, which include surgical myectomy for obstructive disease, alcohol septal ablation, uh, the uh, defibrillator that has really changed the outlook of high-risk patients for prevention of arrhythmia complications, and treatment of atrial fibrillation. Of course, when you move to the landscape of pharmacological interventions, this is what the landscape look, looked like for a long time. So we do have some palm trees, a little oasis everywhere and there, but that's mostly because we have used, to good, um, with good effect, drugs that have been developed for other diseases, such as beta blockers of verapamil. Uh, there have been, have been some joy, but not too much, with drugs like ranolazine or perhexlin, trying to modify some of the substrate of disease, and of course, disopiramide, which we use as a negative inotrope for control of arrhythmias, uh, and particularly for control of obstruction. As you see, however, not much. And particularly, none of these drugs have ever been developed thinking about the real mechanism of disease. They have just been used because they were, they were available and did some good things to, to our patients, made our patients feel better to some extent. But of course, if we move to the actual mechanism of disease, HCM is a disease caused by mutations in sarcomere gene proteins, which are the actual machinery of the heart. And of course, uh, there is nothing as sensitive as the sarcomere in heart pathophysiology. And we do know now that one of the determinants, particularly in the model of HCM caused by beta-myosin heavy chain mutation, is the fact that the uh, conformation of the myosin dimers is altered so that mutations in the, in the dimers, as you see here, favor the on or the activated uh, sort of uh, form of the, of the molecule as opposed to the super relaxed or inactive form of the molecule which is prevalent in nature. And this is essential because the sarcomere needs time to recover, needs to be sustainable. So we cannot possibly use or our myosin heads in contraction at any given time so that in fact, in, in normal sarcomeres, 40 to 50% of the myosin heads are estimated to be in a super relaxed state, therefore not involving contraction. When you have mutations in particular uh, regions of the myosin molecules, this 
leads to a natural doping of the heart. So hyperactivation of these molecules, which tend to be much more commonly in an activated state, which leads to a hypercontractile, but also high energy-consuming sort of state, which is, to some extent, uh, what is really the main, the original sin behind the disease, leading to a number of downstream complications, anything to, uh, with regard to energy propagation, to um, an electrophysiological uh, remodeling of the cardiomyocytes. So small uh, defects leading to huge complications. And of course, in the clinical arena, this translates to the progressive buildup of complications of Uh, disease uh, of ventricular dysfunction, heart failure-related complications, and arrhythmias, although the actual risk of arrhythmic event is definitely not as high as we thought. But you can see from these data from the share registry that the sooner you, are, you have a clinical evident disease, the more likely you are to have some kind of complication during your lifetime because of the pathophysiology I was referring to. And of course, this is what In, in some unfortunate patients, about 7-10% of the patients, the progression of disease becomes so severe as to dominate the clinical picture and lead to dysfunction and heart failure, uh, subtended by severe diffuse fibrosis. So, in fact, we can make this a, a case of too much of a good thing, too much contractility leading to adverse consequences, which is really the essence, uh, according to the most brilliant minds that have thought about ACM, is the actual essence of the disease. So it was about time that we had a, a molecule that could actually counter this mechanism, and this is, in fact, the, uh, this is exactly what mavacamptin is. Mavacamptin is a first-in-class allosteric, uh, inotropic, negative myosin modulator, which binds to the myosin head, reduces its affinity for actin, and therefore tries to restore, to normalize the states of things uh, with less has involved in contraction at a given time. So really normalizing the core mechanism of disease in HCM, at least for as far as we know on patients that have sarcomere gene mutation-associated um, disease. Does Mavacamptin work? We know it does work because there have been, there's been extensive experimental uh, work, particularly in animal models, transgenic HCM animal models. In the mouse model, uh, of course, in which we can have a lot of information, a lot of tissue available, and also uh, prognosis because of the short uh, lifespan of these animals. We know that uh, it, the, the drug treatment with Mavacamptin, so normalization of sarcomere status, leads to reduced hypercontractility, improves diastolic function, develops, uh, sort of stops the development, or even sometimes reverses development of hypertrophy, and to some extent normalizes fibrosis and disarray. So it is really a disease-modifying sort of agent in the animal model. What about humans? Of course, it's much harder to study a drug like this in humans, uh, but we do have a lot of information now, and, it, and information is building up as more, the more studies we do. Uh, we know that in patients with obstructive disease, which has been the original target, simply because obstructive disease is... Easy, easier, not easy, but easier to study uh, because symptoms are so correlated to obstruction and relievous gradient really uh, translates into um, clinical improvement. So in patients with obstructive HCM, we know that the drug is capable by its negative anotropic action to relieve the gradient, improve performance, improve quality of life, and to some extent trigger 
cardiac remodeling, positive cardiac remodeling, as well as uh, improve the, the biomarker profile of these patients. So this, this is data from the Explorer HCN trial, which is the first uh, and the largest phase three study uh, performed in HCM so far with Mabacampton, looking at obstructive symptomatic HCM patients. You can see here how on the left, the gradient in patients who are treated with Mabacampton is very clearly, very nicely reduced by Mabacampton as opposed to virtually no change in placebo. This is exercise-related gradient. And on the right, how this effect is obtained with only very small reduction in ejection fraction, only 4% drop in ejection fraction. So in a safe and well-tolerated manner, very huge effect on the gradient. And this is one patient from, from my center. You can see at baseline the typical gradient and SAM. And you can see here after 30 weeks of treatment, uh, the gradient on Valsalva has disappeared. Quality of life increases very extensively. There was a nine-point improvement with KCCQ, which is a massive improvement in patients, simply because they, have, they are not obstructive anymore. But even more interestingly, in terms of thinking ahead and for long-term prognosis, the biomarkers, as I was referring to, anti-BMP and troponin I, which are um, very heavily impacted in a beneficial way by the drug. The, in terms of cardiac function, we, we know that diastolic function improves in patients treated with Mavacampton. There are other evidence of, of, remod of positive remodeling from CMR sub-studies of Explorer and other, and other studies. What we were not expecting to see is this. This is an ECG from one patient of my center participating in Explorer. You can see the typical and huge and evident ECG abnormalities, reportalization abnormalities, typical of HCM. And this is the same patient, same, virtually same heart rate at the end of the study. Uh, and this is something we have not really seen, this kind of normalization or repolarization of normalities with other drugs, even though you may drop the gradient, you never see this happen with disapiramide, for example. And we don't really know what this is um, due to, but it's quite intriguing to think that some of the disease-modifying effect we have seen in animal models may actually translate in clinical practice into this sort of effect. And we're definitely looking more into this because this is a consistent effect and if you use artificial intelligence um, algorithm to detect HCM, you can see that at the beginning of the trial with, with Mavacampton, most of the patients are picked up by artificial intelligence. At the end of the study, the same patients are not diagnosed anymore by the same algorithm because the ECGs has improved so much. And we hope to show more and more with time that this is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of what the drug can do for disease modification. This is the most recent trial, the Valor-HCM trial, which aimed to understand whether patients who were candidates for surgery, so obstructive patients, candidates for surgery, surgical myectomy, could actually benefit from Malacampton. And you can see randomized with placebo. Uh, you can see that in green, the patients that uh, were candidates for surgery at the beginning of the study uh, were basically became non-eligible at the end of the study and therefore dropped from the waiting list as opposed to very little effect into that respect in, in the placebo arm. So this is in the, while we're waiting for sort of to know more about the long-term effect of the drugs, we definitely know that in the shorter term, this is a very effective uh, drug in controlling obstruction symptoms and even may postpone or delay or even eliminate, who knows, the need for surgery. So in conclusion, um, we are now at the beginning of a new era for treatment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, 
simply because this is a, the first drug that has been designed specifically for the disease, has been developed successfully, and is now entering uh, clinical use. In the U.S., it is already approved by the FDA. In Europe, we're still awaiting EMA, EMA approval. Uh, we think that the drug will initially be positioned in patients with symptomatic obstructive disease uh, as a sort of intermediate step will probably be used in patients who have failed to respond to the standard pharmacological options and before moving on to surgery, and hopefully will stop the need for these patients to go on into invasive and sometimes potentially dangerous interventions. But, of course, we hope that the, um, the era that has just begun with the advent of myosin modulators, there are other uh, molecules along this pipeline that have been developed will change the landscape, the treatment landscape of HCM forever, bringing more and more opportunities to our patients and hopefully demonstrating that treating patients with this kind of approach not only uh, improves symptoms in the short term but really modifies the disease and is capable of interfering with the natural history of the disease. Thank you very much. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by PACE CME, the Physician's Academy for Cardiovascular Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.